Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. Welcome to our Help One Child podcast. We are so glad that you're taking time out today to join us, and we hope that you will find this show helpful to you as you raise your adopted, foster, and kinship children. My name is Kristen Wynn Reyes, and I'm your host today as we cover the topic of trauma-informed practices and resiliency building for children. Our guest today is Julie Kurtz. We're so honored to have her, and she is the founder of Center for Optimal Brain Integration. Julie has led several trainings and shared resources generously with Help One Child foster adoptive and kinship families. She is a therapist and has a trauma background from her own childhood that empowers her to serve others whose lives are shaped by trauma. Julie, we are so glad to have you today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Kristen, and the work that you do and also the work that foster parents do. There is no greater work on the planet and harder work. And we're going to talk about that today. Thank you. I agree. So let's talk about trauma. Can you give us an overview and the different types even of trauma? Yeah, I mean, trauma is defined by two things. And if um, in this short time, I was able to say, okay, let me give you a summary of just two things you have to remember that define trauma, I would say. Number one, trauma is defined by the individual's sensory system, not the event or the intensity of the event. And what I mean by that is, Kristen, you and I could both be five years old and we both could be riding our bicycles on the playground at our school and we crash into one another and you fall off and I fall off and we both respond differently. Your sensory system defines it as hysterical and you're laughing. And my sensory system starts shaking and crying and I think everybody's looking at me and I'm triggered and I might experience that as traumatic or stressful. So the first definition is that trauma is defined by the individual's experience of the event, not the event itself or the intensity. The second definition of trauma would be that, that that experience of falling off the bike for me may have been stressful, but it's not trauma unless it has long-term adverse effects on me socially, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, or physically across the lifespan, even into adulthood. And you were asking too, Kristen, about the types of trauma, right? Yes, yes. There's so many different types of trauma that we can experience, like a one-time trauma, that's a single event in a limited period of time. It could be death, loss, uh, witnessing a shooting, um, of being involved in a fire. Um, you know, something that happens one time. But chronic trauma is another type of trauma, and that's multiple traumatic events. Multiple things happen to you. Historical trauma is when somewhere down your generation, uh, past ancestors, current generational historical events or prolonged trauma that gets passed down from one generation to the next by values, perceptions, stories, beliefs, and behaviors that pass from one generation to the next. 
But then there's something else called epigenetics, and some of the emerging research is showing that trauma can impact our genes. So constant release of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is that stress response system that sends stress chemicals through our body. If that's continually activated from trauma, it can change the expression of our genes and timestamp trauma onto our genes and we pass it down from one generation to the next so future generations that may not have experienced trauma may be exhibiting symptoms of someone who's been through trauma even though they haven't gone through it and finally the last is something we call in the trauma field complex trauma this is probably many foster children have experienced complex trauma which is exposure to chronic ongoing trauma caused by the very adults that are entrusted to your care. And the reason why this is one of the most harshest forms of trauma is because the people that you're born to the planet to are the first people that are supposed to provide nurturing, responsive caregiving and safe, predictable environments. And when you don't get that in the beginning of your life, you lose the opportunity to develop an internal narrative that says, ah, okay, the world is safe. It's not dangerous. And so you kind of get stuck there in that internal feeling, what you carry around with you throughout your lifespan, that people are not safe and the world is not safe. And those are just a few of the types of traumas that people can experience. Okay, thank you. That's an outstanding overview. I knew we were in your area of expertise. How might past trauma show up as behaviors or dysregulation for children in our homes? That's question keep going tell me you had more to it (laughs) and what will help us determine if it's actually a trauma trigger or a reminder or just behavior ah so what's the difference between whether behavior comes from a typical challenging behavior like you know when my husband's not giving me enough attention and over time I get irritated and then one morning I wake up and turn into a volcano right that's just typical challenging behavior right? right comes from big emotions that we hold in and get pushed and all humans are capable of typical challenging behavior, children and adults, but typical challenging behavior is because it takes 25 years to develop an adult with the adult type networks that allow myself to have self-awareness. I know what I'm feeling. I know how big it is. I know I need to pick something from my self-regulation toolkit so I can calm my body down. So I don't hurt that person in Walmart who just bumped into my cart, right? Like (laughs) we have the ability to self-regulate, calm our bodies down, think things through perspective, take, make choices. But children have immature sensory response systems. So Children have immature behaviors all the way up till 25. So our job is not to punish. Our job is to teach. So that that way we can help them learn how to develop those skills. However, trauma is something different. Trauma is when we experience something scary over and over and over, and we did not have the opportunity to fight, flight, or freeze, Like right now, if there was an earthquake in the middle of this podcast and the ceiling started crumbling and the room started shaking, it was an 8.5 earthquake, you would not keep listening to this podcast. You would jump under the table immediately because there's a part of our brain that gets us to protect ourselves in danger and we either fight, flight, or freeze. And when we can successfully do that, 
We, can, we don't store the trauma inside of ourselves or after the trauma. We're shaking and crying and hugging our loved ones and our loved ones are like, what happened? And we're calling our relatives all over the country. We're crying and shaking. We're releasing it from our body so it doesn't impact us long term. But when you're a child, like when I was a little girl and I experienced scary stuff, I didn't get to fight my dad or run away from home. So because I wasn't able to do that, when the energy charge of trauma hit, I store it in my body. And it kind of gets time stamped like a passport stamp. And the way it impacts, remember that first definition, long-term adverse impacts, socially, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. Well, what happens is I walk through life and then something that's not dangerous, Kristen, triggers that memory, goes down the memory lane to that passport stamp, that trauma memory stamped in my brain and releases information that says you're now in danger again. Fight, flight, freeze. And then that's when children with histories of trauma either start fighting, destroying property, hurting others. I'll give you just one simple example. Um, I, when I fly on an airplane, I didn't have anything bad happen to me on an airplane. So an airplane's not a trauma trigger, but I always make sure I have an aisle seat. Why? Because I've learned that when I have a window seat on a long flight, I start to have my heart race. My pupils dilate. I start shaking. I leave my body. I have what we call a trauma trigger. Why? Because when I was a little girl and my father would come home, maybe in violent rages, hurt my brothers, hurt me or hurt my mom, I would immediately be unable to fight, flight, freeze. And the feeling that I would have was trapped and out of control. I couldn't escape. So why on an airplane when I'm sitting by the aisle? Because I can't escape. So it's not like there's something dangerous that triggered my memory. It's just something that triggers the memory of being out of control. So I'm going to summarize this finally. The same behaviors can happen. Typical challenging behavior or trauma trigger. They go into fight, flight, freeze. They both look the same. You never need to know if a child has a trauma history. All the strategies we're going to talk about today are strategies that will help all children, even children who've ex- who have a trauma trigger and feel unsafe or a child that's acting out because what they're trying to communicate to you is I'm angry. I hope that wasn't too long of an explanation. No, that was that was excellent. Thank you. Really good examples, too, for us to see how then we can respond. And I'm grateful you're going to look at strategies with us today later. So um, let's look at neurobiology of the brain. Are there differences in a trauma-exposed versus healthy brain? Um, And can you remind us of the different parts of the brain um, and how we can respond to our children in those different spaces? Oh, that's such a good question. So the first part of your brain and the listeners is underneath your mouth. So your mouth all the way to the base of your neck is the science term is called the hindbrain. Or... What I like to call it is the part of our brain we share with all reptiles on the planet. It's the part of the brain that's the most primitive. It's where we go when we fight, flight, or freeze, when we're in danger. Sitting right on top of the reptile brain is something called the amygdala. Um, And it's an alarm system in our brain. And it wakes the reptile brain up in our lives when we have too much stress, too much uncertainty, not enough sleep. 
eating too much sugar, someone pushes our emotional buttons, our boss sends us an email that drives us crazy, our parent tells us we didn't do something right, a test is coming up, a trauma trigger, any of those reasons can set off the alarm and wake up our reptile brain to perhaps hijack us to fight, flight, or freeze. And that's where our blood pressure increases. Our breathing becomes rapid. We start sweating. We're shaking. We feel like there's rocks in our throat, a roller coaster in our stomach, or a volcano in our heart. If you go to the second part of the three parts I'm going to talk about, in between your mouth and your eyeballs is the science term limbic brain, the midbrain. We share this part of our brain with all mammals on the planet, like dolphins, dogs, it's responsible for two things, emotions and attachment. Emotions can be calm, small, medium, or large. And then the attachment, that's where this part of our brain desires to be loved, to be connected, to be in a tribe. That's why you always hear people say, that's my church. That's my running club. That's my book club. This is my family on Facebook. These are my people. This is where I work. It's this part of our brain that wants to have belonging. And then as we walk up the staircase to the third part of our brain, above your eyeballs, to the top of your head has many terms, the cortex, prefrontal cortex, executive brain, forebrain, but it is the part of the brain that I call the boss, the CEO. It takes 25 years to build this part of our brain. Only humans have it, and it gives us the ability to think, reason, problem solve, have empathy for others, perspective take, think things through, or even we get that Ikea table in the mail and there's what, 40 pages and 3,000 parts to focus long enough without flipping our lid and losing it, right? That's that part of our brain. Most kids have need to have 25 years to build it. Mm-hmm. But if you've experienced trauma or um, toxic stress, the children that you serve, we call it um, delayed development because children that grow up in privilege, no trauma, the hindbrain or the reptile part of our brain goes to sleep at around two years old and the mammal brain then wakes up. That's why we call them terrible twos because they start having tantrums because for the first time in their lives, two-year-olds have big emotions. And they lift their hands up for their parent to pick them up and hold them to comfort them all the time because that's the emotional connection and attachment. So the problem is with children who experience ongoing chronic trauma live in their reptile brain because developmentally the second part of their brain never felt safe enough to wake up. Living in the reptile brain means I'm living in hypervigilant, fight, flight, or freeze, scanning for danger every second. And little, little things set us off because our window of tolerance is so small. So you look at me the wrong way. You ask me to take the chores out. I misinterpret your facial cues. I misinterpret your behaviors because I'm scanning for danger all the time. How can our understanding of trauma, behavior, and the brain help us parent our children from hard places for healing and resilience building? So what are some of those strategies we can use? Oh, there's so many, but keeping the brain in mind. And if I were a foster parent, I would say, okay, 
the child is coming to me living in their reptile brain. They're probably interpreting everything as dangerous, even when I'm calm. And they're probably going to misinterpret and mis. Uh, interpret my facial expressions, my tones. When I ask them to do something in a calm voice, they're going to misinterpret as you hate me, you think I'm stupid. You just need to go into this knowing that if you went into this becoming a foster parent to give children love, then you're already, you've already recognized that your superhero is being a helper, giving and wanting to make a difference. But remembering years of working with foster parents that they're, they're kryptonite because every superhero has a kryptonite, something that makes them weak. As soon as the children start acting up and saying, F you, I hate you, or you stupid B, or slamming the door, or destroying property, we don't understand because we're giving them love. And we thought if we just gave love and nurturing, they would be responding to us. But the healing process of someone with a brain who's experienced severe or moderate trauma takes a long time to heal. And what happens is because we live in the reptile brain most of the day, we require what the infants in the first two years required. Nurturing, responsive caregiving, and safe, predictable environments. Over time, providing those without reacting to their behavior by flipping your own lid. And when I say flip your lid, that means the boss part of your brain flips off your ability to think, reason, have empathy, stay calm, flips off, and you get hijacked by your reptile brain. That's one of the most dangerous things that can happen is because when you go to your reptile brain in the face of your foster children, you're going to do things like bribe, threat, shame, yell, punish. And for children with histories of trauma, when you go there, you're going to trigger them even more into the danger of the reptile brain. But ways we heal children who've experienced trauma is to remember what it takes time to redo and rewire their brain to safety. And that takes an adult that has a lot of self-care, Kristen. You have got to have a lot of self-care and a self-awareness of your own emotional state. And what I mean by self-care is filling up your emotional bucket so that you have enough energy to deal with their challenges and enough energy to rewire their brain and grow a human. And that takes a lot and we have to have foster parents that have enough, not only internal strength, which you do, but doesn't get burnt out because when you're burnt out, you won't have the energy. It's kind of like this. When I drive on the freeway and my emotional gas tank is empty and I'm burned out and someone cuts me off, I will chase them down maybe, hang out the window, say swear <laughs> words. But when I am calm, I have enough self-care to balance the amount of stress I have and someone cuts me off. I have these reserves in my body that allow me to tolerate all the difficult things that happen. And instead, I'm angelic. I'm like, oh, sweetheart, go ahead. You must be in a rush. Besides, we're all one. We're brothers and sisters in the world. Let me let you go ahead um, and gain because I'm so patient. And that's the the best thing you can do is to really take care of yourself so you have the energy so you don't default to your reptile brain and punish. That's just one, one strategy. Do you want me to share more or you have questions about that? Well, I feel like 
you know, you've you've struck on the million dollar answer that if we could bottle self care, <laughs> it would just be such a lifesaver because I do um, know that so many foster adoptive and kinship families that the parents are really struggling with having that reserve with getting enough time in for self care. And um, so it it makes so much sense that you would say that's kind of key to all of this work. Um, But I think also sometimes we prioritize our children over ourselves. And then that obviously is leading to the problem again, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, because if our superpower is scanning for others' needs and helping others, then we're quite used to always looking outward at other people's needs, but not our own. But self-care is sort of a really weird term. Like, what does it mean? I don't have time to get mani-pedis. I remember when my kids one year apart were little and I was working full-time and they're not even foster kids, right? They don't even have the typical challenging behaviors that foster children might come with. And I was like, don't even talk to me about self-care. I don't even have a second of the day. And especially during COVID, right? It's like, you know, if you're listening this during COVID, which forever, everybody will remember that word and 2020, we had no time with our kids at home and schooling them and working. And so I, sometimes I think back on what did I do? Well, sometimes walking for me was uh, uh, regulators. So I would do silly things like when my kids were babies, I just put them in the stroller and go for a walk. Sometimes it was like just play on the floor with them and have fun and cook or bake with them. And so doing the self-care things that I enjoy alongside them or with them or sometimes self-care is just 30 seconds or a minute of taking the right belly breaths to calm my body down. Sometimes it's just saying that quote to myself that reminds me to stay grounded and not default to my reptile brain. Sometimes it's just putting my hand on my heart or sometimes it's looking at a photo on my phone or it might be saying a prayer or a mantra to myself. It might just be taking just a minute to walk outside and look at nature or to beautify my home or to clean, cleaning the counters, picking a few weeds outside. These simple things sometimes are moments that all add up for ourselves. I love those ideas. Thank you. I think that's really helpful. And, um, you talked about regulating ourselves. Um, I don't think we've talked yet about regulation and dysregulation. So I know you talk about it um, for parents and for the children we're caring for. Um, what is it that we could know about regulation and dysregulation that also will help us parent our children better? Well, we talked first about adult regulation because adults are the external Wi-Fi to the internal world of a child. Most all children have immature sensory sensory response systems. They don't, they haven't built the muscle of learning how to regulate big emotions. When I say the adults, the external Wi-Fi to the internal world of a child, the way I see it is um, I'm 53 and back when I was a young kid, we had a television, no remote controls, four channels. And we, the children were the remote controls. So the parent would say, get up and change it to channel four. <laughs> right. And you change it to channel four, but the it was the worst because then the picture would be all fuzzy. And you had to stand over the TV and move the antennas while someone was directing you a little more to the left, a little more to the right. Don't move right there. And you had to like gently move away. And I feel like that's what children's, 
bodies are like. It just takes a transition. It just takes a changing of the channel in your home. Someone's mood changes and then everything is all messed up and hazy. And you are the person that's getting up and trying to get the child's channel to change over to calm again and moving those antennas is unique to each child how to get that picture back in and first the adult has to be regulated in fact they did a study and they had one group of foster kids and in the second group it was children who've experienced no trauma and one at a time they brought children into the scientist's office and watched a video of two kids playing on a playground it was sunny out, they were laughing, had smiles on their face, jump roping together. And they asked each child, what do you see? The typically developing children with no trauma history always saw the picture mostly accurately. Oh my God, they're best friends, they're having fun, it's sunny out, they're playground at school, yay, they're not in class. And almost always the way the foster children saw it was they're in trouble. Something bad's going to happen. They hate each other. The teacher's coming. They're getting expelled from school. Um, you know, they saw it with a different lens. I call it a trauma lens. And so one of the things we need to remember is children are constantly looking at our nonverbal facial expressions and the tone of our voice and our body language to determine whether they're safe. Because remember, their brain is always scanning for danger. So number one, adults being aware of their own triggers and their regulation states so they can co-regulate children either when they're triggered or to keep them calm. But how do we teach children self-regulation? We know it takes 25 years, Julie, but what the heck? <laughs> how do I do this? Yes. So I always say it's best to teach kids any age when they're calm, not when they're upset. We make the mistake of talking and lecturing and threatening and bribing children when they're in a heightened state of arousal or they're triggered emotionally. And remember when I'm triggered, when that person cut me off on the freeway, I flipped my lid, which is the part of my brain above my eyeballs, my boss of my brain. When that flips off in an earthquake or I get cut off on the freeway, I no longer can think problem solve, reason, um, access the part of my brain that allows me to solve this in a way that won't hurt others, myself, or property. So we never want to lecture to children when they're in the middle of something. We just want to get them safe and try strategies that will be calming, which we can talk about later. Now, what do we teach kids when they're calm? It's four simple steps, but it's not really simple. It sounds simple. Number one, you want to teach your foster children emotional literacy. Like when they're calm, just reading books about feelings, reading books about emotions, asking them if they ever had that feeling. Because children with histories of trauma become cut off from their internal world so that they could stay safe. When I was a little girl, I had to scan for danger all the time. I was never able to tune in or to think about how I feel. I didn't get to do that till I was in my 20s. So helping them tune inward. What are feeling words? What are the size of feeling words? When do I have them? How to notice them in other people? Practicing is what makes permanent. The second strategy to build resilience is not just teaching, number one, emotional literacy and the size of my emotions, but number two, when your emotions get big, 
or in that red zone, let's build a toolbox of strategies that you can use to calm yourself or help yourself feel safe again. Are there places you can go that are safe? People you can go to? Objects you can hold? Activities you can do? Let me practice with you over and over and over while you're calm. Because the brain does not know the difference between practice and real. That's why they do fire drills and earthquake drills in school. So all the children in a real emergency won't default to the reptile brain and run off the campus, go crazy, punch other people. The more you practice what to do in an emotional emergency, how to identify your emotions, the size, and how to calm your body down, the more they'll be able to build this resiliency skill, which is going to save their lives. I guess I'll kind of stop there and pause. Okay. And um, yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. And um, what if you have a child who's resistant to building their emotional literacy? So maybe talking about feelings is dangerous. Ah, good. Gosh, you have such good questions. I'm telling you, all your kids are going to be resistant. Let's just put it that way. And you're going to have a higher chance of having less resistancy if they're in a good space, calm, um, you know, kind of in that space. And it, it depends on the age. If you've got kids under five, they're going to want to sit and read a book with you and learn about these things when they're calm. But if you've got a teenager, teenagers tend to learn more, talk more, in neutral situations. Like I remember my teenagers, I'd be like, how was your day? And they'd be like, fine at the table. Right. Cause we're all sitting. But when I drive them in the car, they talk a hundred miles an hour. So sometimes we can help kids reflect when they had a difficult situation they're upset about when they get calm again. Sometimes we can practice with them, but most kids are going to be resilient. And I'll add one other piece. It takes time to grow a human. It takes time to build resilience. It's not like they're going to jump up and down the minute you say, let's talk about feelings. Let's look at this feelings chart. And some kids need therapy to do that because it's a more neutral space, but they're not going to be like, thank you so much. You're the most amazing person. I'm so glad you let me into your home. I mean, these kids have so much loss. They miss their families, even if they hurt them. They're confused. They walk around in the world feeling unsafe all the time. It really takes time and they're going to be more resilient if they don't have an attachment with you. So the greatest thing you can do is just spending time with them in a way they like to spend time, spending time with them and not personalizing when they get triggered by you and continuing to be there and be a safe place. Don't pay attention to the challenging behaviors. That's the shark fin. Look beyond the shark fin to the meaning of their behaviors and what it's communicating. And if you can forever remember this, children with trauma histories, always when they are resistant or have challenging behaviors, always, it's because they don't feel safe. And it has nothing to do with you. It's not because you weren't making them feel safe enough. It has to do with the internal dialogue they built inside of themselves that nothing is safe. And when you look at me with that smile, the way I interpret it is, I'm not safe. You want something from me. And so we just can't personalize. We need to stay calm. If you keep doing that, Dr. Bruce Perry, one of the leaders in the trauma field, says 
those are the very small acts that will continue to heal. So don't be disappointed. It takes time to do it with typically developing children. It'll take time to do it with foster kids, but your patients will pay off in the long run to help them build that resilience. Wonderful. I think that's really helpful for us to hear. <laughs> so yeah. thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, you are a big advocate of uh, creating supportive, calming spaces and safe zones. How could we do that in our homes for our children? Well, everything always depends on the age, right? But however, let's just talk about safe spaces in general. I think that when all of us think about yourself, the listener who's listening to this right now first, when you get, just imagine yourself feeling scared. Do you ever have a memory of feeling scared? I remember when COVID first hit, um, I had spent 52 years building my emergency toolkit on what things that made me feel safe. And then it was all gone. Like literally, I, I literally felt so scared. And I had to rebuild my emergency toolkit of the things that helped me feel safe. And they were either similar to before COVID and altered a little bit, like I couldn't go to the gym anymore, right? So I just started walking. Mm -hmm. and Or it was new strategies. People were finding things like baking and cleaning and cooking and Zooming. So here's the deal about our... our um, when we feel scared, when you feel scared and you think about those moments right now, usually our scared brain, the reptile part of our brain is desperately scanning for something that will make us feel safe. That's why when there's an earthquake, we go under a table. That's the safest space we can think of that we practice in school. Um, if there's a fire and we see the smoke billowing from under our door, we put cloths at the door and we go out another way. So our brains are designed to scan in a nanosecond. Is there a safe person I can go to? Is there a safe place in my home or, in, or somewhere? Is there an activity that I do? Like I walk a lot. That's what I've been doing since I'm 15 is exercising to regulate my body or is there an activity I can do like playing with Play-Doh, lifting weights, um, blowing bubbles, playing with my dolls, whatever it may be. So kids, sometimes you can practice with them the ways they can help themselves feel safe when they're not safe by thinking of who are the people within our home you can go to. If you don't feel comfortable going to a person, where in the home can you go where you can get away? Or what are some activities that you typically do? Some kids will say skateboarding. Some kids will say play video games. You know, it all depends on your house rules, but you can have an agreement that they can clue you when they feel triggered. Sometimes it can be a nonverbal clue. Sometimes it can be a verbal clue. But then they are able to access the safe people, places, objects, or activities. And sometimes the safe place is in their bed, in the room. I'll never forget when I used to go in my room, I used to shut my door and then my dad would be knocking on the door, open the door right now. And I, it was like my, I couldn't get away, right? Like, and we all need those places to escape till we get calm again, because otherwise we are going to hurt others, ourselves or property until we get calm. Right, right. Okay, that's, yeah. that's very helpful. And um, you talk about attunement strategies and how can we attune 
with our children to um, better help them regulate or have their senses. Ah, yes, because we want to attune to the internal world of a child to help them um, attach to us, connect with us, to feel safe. And yet attunement, if I were to say to you, Kristen, if you were crying, we'll just make this up. You don't even have to answer, but just let's say Kristen's my best friend. She was crying and um, we don't have any history of trauma. And I go over to her and I hug her and she will accept the hug. And she's like, I'm so glad I have friends in my life who make me feel better. Or, or the older Kristen calls me up and she tells me something that happened to her. And she's so upset about it. I'm like, just listening and, and just my listening helps her calm down. But with foster kids, there's also another element that you're going to try to come and help them. And some foster kids actually feel safe, unsafe because people have always, adults have always let them down. And so we have to attune to children in the way they feel comfortable. I'll give you an example. There was a foster child who was placed in a, um, he, he he had been through 20 foster care placements. Oh, my goodness. I can't remember. Maybe it was by the second grade. And finally was adopted by two moms. And um, these two moms were beautiful. And But here's the thing is every time they dropped the foster child off at school, the child would be triggered into the reptile brain because think about this trauma trigger. You're dropping me off. You're leaving me. You're abandoning me. And if I've been through 20 foster care placements, that means dropping me off triggers a memory in me that makes me feel unsafe. So at drop-off, it was the most horrible, screaming, tantruming. It was really hard. So um, the teachers would try to approach the child because our natural instincts is to hug or comfort. But adults represented a lack of safety, right? Because approaching me means you're going to take me away. So at that moment, attunement was not you coming and helping me for that child. Secondly, they in this classroom, they had safe spaces in the corners and they taught the kids, you can go to the safe space anytime you need to calm your body down. So when they would invite, I'll just call him Jeremy. It's a made up name. Jeremy, would you like to go to the safe place and take some time till you feel calm? Sending him to a safe space was like sending him away to a home. So remember I said the things that people's brains scan for to feel safe and the adults were not, the space was not. So what are we going to do? Remember I said people, places, objects, or activities. So we came up with an idea. Maybe an object will help ground him. So we asked the moms to say to Jeremy, "You here's the key to our house at drop-off. So they created a ritual at drop-off. The ritual took a little bit longer than most kids. So they came up with a whole ritual, like a way to, to enter the, the way to enter the campus, a way to walk him to the campus, rituals that they would do, like the same routine every day. And then at drop-off, it was a simple ritual to hand him off to the teacher, but they gave him the key to their home in front of the teacher and said, this is the key to our home. You have it. We can't get home without picking you up first. And this was the object that ground, he looked at this key maybe a hundred thousand times during the day because in his terrified brain that they're not going to come get me, he could look at the key and remember they can't get home without picking me up first. Now I know they could get home, right? But, um, I don't know why this worked for this child. So when we talk about attunement, 
sometimes it's not always what we think. It's helping know what's going to work for that child to help them feel safe until they feel safe with us. I don't know if what I said made any, made any sense. I thought it was great. Yeah, that was a great, really concrete example of how you have to just be creative in, in knowing your child and attuning to see what they need. It's not going to be the same for, for every, every child. child. Yes. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then just in conclusion, Julie, um, is there anything else you'd like to say? Any resources you'd like to recommend to us for trauma-informed practices and how to really help our children build resiliency? Oh, that is a great question. If you want to learn more, since this is just the beginning, right, of our understanding, I guess the best place I can lead you to is to our website. And hopefully Kristen will be able to post that. But I'll tell you what it is. It's www.optimalbrainintegration.com. When you go there, you'll find several resources. On the home page, number one, you can sign up for our email group list. Also, there are blogs. If you click our resource button, there are several little mini two to three minute reads. There's recommendations for children's books of all ages, books for adults to read on trauma. Also, there's a page called free resources, depending on the age you work with, all the way from pre-K to adults. Um, talking about trauma, social, emotional skills, strategies, feel free to check it out. And if all else fails, we, I have an email under the contact. You can email me with your specific questions that you have, and I'm happy to respond and connect you to more resources. Thank you so much, Julie. Um, you know, I just want to say how important this time has been and how much I've taken, I know, for parenting my own children. And um, I know it's been helpful. You've given so many tools and suggestions, strategies that we can use um, as we parent our children from hard places. So thank you very much. Thank you. And for everybody who's listening, thank you for being a voice for children because children who've experienced trauma lose their voice. And by you looking beyond the challenging behavior to the meaning of their behavior, you're actually giving them a voice. So thank you so much. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.